Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Wena Dai Randell, the author of The Moon in the Palace and The Empress of Bright Moon, two connected novels about Empress Wu, the only woman to rule in her own name in imperial China. Her distinctiveness is evident from the beginning, but the road to her goal will require extraordinary strength and de- dedication. This is already obvious in Chapter 1. The I is May, the future Empress Wu. The day my future was foretold, I was just five years old. I was practicing calligraphy in the garden where father hosted his gathering with the nobles, scholars, and other important men of the prefecture. It was a brilliant summer afternoon. He was not wearing his governor's hat, and the sunlight sifted through the maze of the oak branches and illuminated his gray hair like a silver crown. A monk, whom I had never seen before, asked to read my face. How extraordinary! He lowered himself to look into my eyes. I have never seen a face with such perfection, a design so flawless and filled with inspiration. Look at his temple, the shape of his nose and eyes. This face bears the mission of heaven. I wanted to smile. I had fooled him. I was father's second daughter and his favorite. He often dressed me in a boy's tunic and treated me as a son he did not have. Mother was reluctant to go along with the game, but I considered it a great honor. It is a pity, however, that he is a boy, the monk said, as people came to surround us. A pity, father asked, his voice carrying a rare shade of confusion. Why is that, Chipitaka? I was curious, too. How could a girl be more valuable than a boy? If the child were a girl with this face, the monk, Chipitaka, watched me intently. She would eclipse the light of the sun and shine brighter than the moon. She would reign over the kingdom that governs many men. She would mother the emperors of the land, but also be emperor in her own name. She would dismantle the house of lies, but build the temple of the divine. She would dissolve the kingdom of ghosts, but found a dynasty of souls. She would be immortal. And now, please join me in welcoming Wena Randell. Hi, Wena. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. I'm looking forward to learning more about Empress Wu and your interest in her. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Before we start, I have to say how impressed I am that you wrote these novels in English, which is not your first language. Uh, Tell us about your childhood in China and how you ended up on this side of the Pacific. Oh, uh, my childhood in China. It was nothing like the life in Texas, I can tell you that. Uh, When I grew up, it was in the 1980s. And my family didn't have a telephone, television, or regular electricity. Definitely, we didn't have McDonald's. Um, I came to this country because I fell in love with a wonderful American man. I came here when I was 24. Really? So you didn't grow up here as a child, but your English is wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, where where were you born in China? I was born in Wenzhou, 
Zhejiang Province. It's a city south of Shanghai. And uh, Texas must have been a bit, bit of a culture shock. Yes, it was. It was a huge culture shock. Everything here was、uh, so flat and so spread out, and、uh, there was so much land here and so hot in the summer. People here don't really visit each other very often, and they make appointments and a visit. When I was in China, when I grew up, if I wanted to visit someone, I just come and swim by. It was so much easier, and the people here like to eat a lot of different food, like meat. And、uh, the, there's no fish here, and which is my favorite. <laughs> You know, one of my fellow writers is.、Uh, she's actually a very elderly Chinese woman at this point,、uh, but she had published in Chinese and she wrote、uh, several memoirs. She、uh, she lived in Shanghai during the occupation, and then her family moved to Taiwan, and so she wrote about that. And she's now writing an entire memoir on food called "When Chopsticks Meet the Hot Dog." <laughs> <laughs> she lived not. She didn't go in Texas, but she lived in Kentucky and various other places where, at the time, they didn't know anything about Chinese food. Oh yeah, and the Chinese food in U.S. is totally different from the Chinese food in China. It, it's like everything here is the, the Chinese food here、uh, has、uh, kumbao chicken is very is most famous I think, but in China there's、uh, different food in different regions, so it's very interesting.、Uh, yeah, that's what she said too.、Um, so at some point she started writing fiction. How did that come about?、Uh, writing fiction. I've always wanted to be an author. It was my childhood dream. Actually, I grew up daydreaming about being an author, and、uh, um, because when I grew up, my family didn't have any modern entertainment. I spent a lot of time reading, and、uh, when I was a kid, my older siblings—I have two older siblings, a brother and a sister—and they had many. Classical Chinese novels, like、uh, *Dream in the Red Mansion* and *The Tales of the Three Kingdoms*, and also novels about kung fu and、uh, romance. I usually、uh, sneaked into the bedrooms and、uh, steal those books, and I read them overnight with a flashlight. And then I would return them in the morning, so my siblings would not find out. Otherwise, they would be very mad. So that's how the seed of a writer was planted with me, I think. And、uh, when I was in fourth grade, I published my first short story in a local journal, and I earned my first six RMB, which is like one dollar in 1980s, which is a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> in the fourth grade, a dollar is a big deal for everyone. Yes. <laughs> It was huge, and my mom was so proud. And I actually got to keep the money for myself and spend it. So I was very happy with that, and I kept writing. When I was twenty-one, I wrote my first novel in Chinese, because then、uh, at that time I didn't speak English, and I pitched the novel to an editor in Shanghai. 
he actually met me in person and talked to me, but ultimately he rejected the novel, and I was very upset and very humiliated. So I burned the manuscript and I decided not to write in Chinese again, and I started to learn English. What was that novel about? Were you? The novel was about a group of kids who started to have relationships relationships when they were cha- were spending a lot of time in the chatting room on the internet. It was in nineteen nineties, and chatting room was very popular. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a long way from Empress Wu. Oh yes, it was a long way. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> But still, it sounds like it could have been a lot of fun. It's too bad that the publisher discouraged you so much. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's always very discouraging to get a rejection. Oh yes, it was. But you know, now that I'm published, you. Know, but you know what? I received eighty-two rejections when I pitched the Moon in the Palace to all those agents. So I'm used to it now. But when I was in twenty, I was twenty-one. It was very hard to swallow that, and the fact that the editor actually met me in person. Rejected me. It was even harder. I think. I think so too.、Um, so tell me, how did you come to write the Moon in the Palace? Then, what attracted you to Empress Wu?、Um, I was inspired to write the Moon in the Palace after I read Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior in graduate school. I did a presentation about、uh, the pregnant woman who drowned herself because she was not married, and her pregnancy was considered a disgrace to her family. I didn't like that piece very much, to be honest, and I wanted to show my classmates that China had many strong women who were able to control the destinies. And the first person who came into my mind was Empress Wu. Because, as you know, she was the first and only female who actually ruled China, ruled about men, and I think that's the greatest example that women can control the life, control the destinies. And she's a very interesting character, and I hope we're going to find out more about her.、Um, so, how? I mean, literally, you were just learning English, and you got this idea. And how did you set about writing the the novel? Did you write it initially in Chinese and then translate it, or did you write it in English from the get go? Oh, that's so funny. No, I I wrote it in English. Actually, when I was writing the Moon in the Palace, I did not think about Chinese at all, because if you If you do think about another language, when you—I mean, for me, it's very hard to think about writing in Chinese and actually write it in English. So usually, every day, I just think everything in English, and then I write in English. But when I'm talking to my parents who live in China, then I just. Speak completely in Chinese, and I don't think about English at all. That's yes, that's a great gift if you could do that.、Um, that's an interesting point. I'm guessing Chinese and, very, and English are very different in their, in their yes, expression. They, yes, they are very different grammar and word structure and sentence structure. It's very different. 
So, um, so let's get to um, well. Actually, you've mentioned how you how you decided to write about Empress Wu, but I read on your website that you spent ten years at least researching the novel. Yes, I did a lot of research about her, and uh, when during my research, I I was very surprised to, to realize that there are not many novels about Empress Wu. And uh, well, there are a few novels written in 1950s and 1960s, and those novels de- described her in a very harsh light, and they were written by men. And they criticized her because she didn't follow Confucian rule, and because you know Confucian rule says women must serve men, not the other way around. So they criticized her a lot. And uh, I think, though, today the world has changed so much, and we needed to write a book about her in a positive light as a woman. And I think a woman has to write that. And uh, to do that, though, I I did extensive research about her. I read all those classical Chinese literature, especially um, Sun Tzu's The Art of War, Confucius, Analects, and Shi Jing, Si Shu Wu Jing, and uh, all those histories written about Tang Dynasty in ancient Chinese script. It was so boring, I'm telling you. <laughs> Sounds so difficult. I mean, I have read, as a historian, I have read um, old Russian script, oh. and especially in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, when they're they're not printing it out anymore because, you know, it's now, it's now scribes who are writing, and so they're they're trying to write rapidly and so they're moving into handwriting and it's so hard to read (laughs) yes it it was very boring and uh uh the ancient chinese script was very condensed and a lot of meanings were very unclear and uh, i had to look at the dictionaries and translate it and verify it uh, with different sources in English and Chinese to make sure this is actually correct. It, it was a very frustrating, pro- frustrating process at first. But then I also learned learned uh, through a lot of research and reading about the ancient world in China in the 7th century and also the way people lived and how they, the environment was and and also the mindset of those people. And it was a lot of research. And I I borrowed a lot of books from the library. And I also borrowed a lot of books from Interlibrary Loan. And uh, I bought a lot of books I really shouldn't buy. But once I see them, I, I just couldn't keep my hands off them. I had to get them. <laughs> So what did you find out that most people don't know about Empress Wu? Um, in China, Empress Wu is still a controversial figure, and people <clears throat> admire her because she was the only female who ruled China. But on the other hand, people also inherited many colorful views of her due to some comments, the biased comments by, made by Confucian scholars. So usually people painted her as a vile, calculative, murderous woman who usurped the throne. 
And I think this is just very unfortunate, by the way. And、uh, some scholars also portrayed her as a sex symbol in many books, given the fact that she was Emperor Taizong's concubine and ended up with his son. So、um, even today's modern scholars don't always look at her favorably. Um, one British author wrote a biography of her, and the title of the book was、uh, "The Chinese Empress Who Murdered, Schemed, and Seduced Her Way to Become a Living God."、Wow. So, yeah, that was very <laughs> harsh, right? Yeah, no, it's very harsh. It's unfortunately it's very typical of of women rulers, you know, even regents or you know. Royal mistresses or whatever—they—they're always painted in this very vicious way. Yeah, and、uh, unfortunately, this kind of view continued, and a lot of people nowadays—they don't—they think they know her because they heard all these comments about her, and、uh, I don't really think we we know what kind of person she was. So the moon in the palace is my interpretation of her, and I hope、uh, many other people will continue to write about her, and so we can explore the、uh, the wonderful woman who once ruled China and made a difference in Chinese history. So yes,、yeah, so、let's talk about your Empress Wu,、uh, who, when we meet her, is a little girl called Mei, which I think is not even really a name, right? It's a description, middle sister or second sister or something like that. You, yes, you're right. You're right about that. Mei.、Uh, it depends on how you write it. It has many meanings, <laughs> but in the beginning of、uh, the Moon in the Palace, Mei just means the middle sister. Oh no, the younger sister. Ah, okay. So, so when we first meet her in the passage that I read in the introduction,、um, she's a little girl, and she's actually dressed as a boy, which confuses、uh, the monk who wants to predict her future. And she's something of her father's favorite, I think we could say.、Um, but tell us what happens to her as a child, right in the beginning. Well,、uh, she was write, writing calligraphy and practicing it, and then the monk came over and read May's face. And he predicted that May would one day become the mother of emperors and also an emperor in her own name. So her father actually believed in that. Her father decided to embrace her identity as a girl, and he taught her mathematics, poetry, history, calligraphy. And each night before she went to bed, he would tell her to recite Sun Tzu's "The Art of War." It's like all warfare is based on deception. All warfare is based on deception. <laughs> <laughs> like that every day.、Mm-hmm. So he had every intention of grooming her to be the emperor that the monk predicted. And unfortunately, he doesn't quite make it. Yeah, that's right. He didn't make it, so he couldn't be there to assist her. So everything is falling on her shoulders, and she has to do it all by herself. 
So um, after her father dies, um, which occurs early enough that I think we aren't giving away any major plot spoilers to mention that, um, Mei moves to Chang'an with her mother and her sisters. And did I say that correctly? Yes, you okay. got it right again. Okay. So, well, Chang'an then was the, the capital of the empire, of the Tang Empire. Um, and it's now Xi'an, is, the, is that right? It's now what? It's now Xi'an? Yes. Yes, Xi'an. Okay, so what was it like then? I think you have a passage that you're going to read for us that, that tells us. Okay. So this passage describes May's first impression when she comes to Xi'an. Um, once we entered the right gateway, the view of the city surprised me. White stone bridges arched in the shape of half moons, stands of green willows edged deep ditches, vermilion colored canoes and indigo hued dragon boats floated on placid can- canals, and the enormous walled buildings. The residential wards, mother told me, stood next to one another like fortresses. I shielded my eyes to block the bright sunlight reflected from the canal. I did not wish to blink, unwilling to miss anything. The streets were as wide as the sky, and maples, elms, oaks, and junipers were spaced out neatly at the sides. Everything seemed organized and orderly. Even the horses stopped nickering as if awed by a silent code of obedience. I like that. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So at first she is living uh, with another member of of her family. Um, But quite soon, um, May, I've written down here, May reaches 15, but I think in retrospect she's actually younger, right? She's actually 12 or 13. When she reached the Chang'an, she was only 12. Okay, so but it's when she is close to 15 that she is selected. When she was 13, she was selected. 13, she was selected. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is the first stage in her father's dream for her. She's brought into the imperial palace as what is called a select. So tell us what that is and what it means for her and also for her family. In China, there was uh, the old tradition that lasts actually for almost 2,000 years that the emperor of the dynasty usually selected a number of maidens. Usually those uh, maidens have to be members of the nobles, and he would select them to serve him. Those women were supposed to be the best of the stock in the kingdom, to say it crudely. And for the women, it was like a beauty contest today. Because when she was selected, she would be considered extremely lucky. And she would have the opportunity to be close to the emperor. And he would bestow land and riches to her and her family. So it was very important. So... um so she's brought into the palace, and the palace hierarchy is very elaborate and very strict. As a select, where does she fit into this? She didn't fit anywhere <laughs> at first, but she didn't know that. A, uh, a new select had no chance to see the emperor, because the emperor has about 2,000 
women, and he does you does not usually see them every day. And he、uh, the select has to wait for the emperor to summon her, and to be summoned was very difficult too. Especially the select has to compete with all these women. And the women themselves are ranked. There's an empress, and then there are、uh, four noble ladies. There's someone who's called most adored. Yes. And then there are other ranks below that, right? There are、uh, in Tang Dynasty. In Tang Dynasty, there were nine ranks, nine degrees of women. The top, the one on the top, was the empress. In the Moon in the Palace, the empress already died. So there was a very big problem in the court, and then the second degree was the ladies. They call it second degree ladies. They there there were four of them, and then there were third degree ladies, ladies in waiting, and then fourth and fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth degrees ladies. And the total number of these ranked ladies was one hundred and twelve. And it's—I mean, their positions are entirely dependent on the emperor, right? He names them and and decides where they should be. That is correct. Yes. So there is, but there's also a lot of interplay. I mean, there is no empress, as you note, in the moon in the palace, and so, but there is a lot of competition among the the ladies. Not all of them equally competitive, but as a group. They are very competitive. Yes, because for those second degree ladies, they wanted to be the empress. You know, once they became the empress, they would have the power, the control of the whole court. The main reason people got so competitive was there was no empress. The empress already died, so somebody had to be one. That's why there was a lot of politics about. Who should become the next empress of Tang Dynasty? And the the main contenders.、Um, there's the noble lady.、Uh, yes. There's、uh, the lady of virtue, the lady of obe-、uh, obedience, and the pure lady.、Mm-hmm. And then there is at the beginning of the story there is no most adored. Is that correct?、The- That is correct. Yes, the most adored is actually a rather unofficial title. Sometimes the most adored does not have the rank. It completely depends on the emperor. If the emperor liked this woman enough and he summoned her a few times in a month, then she would become the most adored, and she would have many privileges, like sitting next to him and receiving the best gowns and even servants and like that. So,、um, so let's let's move into May's place in this this harmony, and then we're going to come back to the most adored because that role becomes very important in the story.、Um, how do you see May herself as a character? I mean, we're talking about Empress Wu, but May is your own character as well. What sets her apart from the other palace women? What sets her apart? What what distinguishes her even at this early、okay. part? Um, when you first read Empress Wu in the Moon in the Palace, you know directly that she was different.
She was different from many European women because she was、uh, practicing the calligraphy, and she was surrounded by uh, her uh, by her father and other scholars.、Um, also, she's very exceptional and different from many traditional women in China because. Um, after the monk said she would be the mother of emperors of the kingdom and also be emperor in her own name, she did not appear confounded or lost or embarrassed. Instead, she went up and she said to the monk that we should meet again. I think this is the place where you first know that she's an exceptional child. Yes,、no, because yeah, she responded to a man who could see the future with such a plum, with no fear at all, and also she responded with a very strong sense of confidence that was almost prophetic. And I think. Actually, for all writers, this is how to create a unique character to see how she responds to、uh, um, whatever is happening to her. So,、uh, and here in the Moon in the Palace, May was only five years old. Normally, you can't expect her to do that much, but she still surprises you and the readers with her response. And of course, she has other qualities too. She loved her family. She always had a desire to take care of them, especially after her family falling apart, after her home was taken away, and after she lost all the wealth. She really wanted to take care of her mother, and this desire never went away, even when she was in the palace. That's a very good point that you made. This is the prophecy attested in the in the books, or was that something that you made up as a way of getting to May's character right away? Yes. Yes, which one? I think it was a、uh, both actually for me because when I wrote the prophecy, I wanted to show readers in U.S. who really who don't really know what happened to her, to give them a picture of、uh, Empress Wu in the future of who she really was, and I also wanted to demonstrate that at the right at the beginning that she was exceptional. You just simply make a prophecy is nothing, but you gotta understand. People wanted to see the character and how she responds. To that prophecy, if she was scared, then people would know. Oh, this child has a lot of fear. But if she has no fear and actually goes back and respond to the monk, and then you will admire the child for her courage. I think、uh, you're getting at something which is really 
interesting uh, is part of her character because you're right, when she's five, uh, she does respond very directly. And there are many moments in, in the two novels, because there's actually a sequel, which is about to come out as well, where she is very direct in her response. But one of the things that struck me about May is that she's also what I would call canny. You know, she she does not always go with things head on. She she can read relationships. She can read rooms. She can she knows what her place is relative to other people. And then she will uh, defer. She'll be um, grateful to them or polite to them. And sometimes when she has a chance to put herself forward, she will actually step back and let someone else take the um, there's no spotlight in Chang China, but you, you get the idea. You know, she she oh. maneuvers her relationships very well. Oh, okay. I think I know which passage you're talking about in The Empress of Bright Moon. Actually, yeah, I think you can say she was cunning. But actually, for me, when I was writing about her, I was in her mind. And I never thought this was a way to maneuver, to manipulate the other people. No, I didn't mean that, actually. I I didn't mean that she was consciously manipulating them. I meant that one of the things that is striking about her is that she is not only a kind of warrior woman, that she is also... um, How should I put this? That, That she's aware that at times it's... It's necessary to defer to other people. Oh, yes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and sometimes she does it I mean sometimes she does it deliberately because she she wants to get a specific effect, but she also does it just because it's appropriate to the situation. I mean she doesn't push herself forward with the noble lady, for example. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yes. And that's part I think of why she's ultimately successful because she if I say she plays on other people's expectations, that again sounds like she's doing it consciously, but I don't think so. It's more like um, she is she's socially sophisticated, even as a quite young girl. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Do you agree? I mean, she she does come across that way, as if she she can look at a situation and she can say, "Well, here I can't, you know, I can only go so far, but not farther." I think a lot of times she did that because. She had other concerns. If she could, she would uh, go forward just like the noble lady. But she was not an equal to the noble lady. And some of her behavior, she understood that would not be acceptable. Right. But that's that's an important thing. If you're operating inside a hierarchy that is as structured as this and is as complicated and has so many competing parts. Yes. And she was very aware of that. Overstepping is a no. (laughs) Right. Because you can get banished to the the outer court, which brings me to um, one of the first things that happens to May is that she makes the acquaintance of another young woman, um, older than she, but she thinks of her as be initially as being an old select, um, another select that is who is just older than the norm. And she assumes that this young woman has never been with the emperor. Uh, her name is Jewel. Yeah. And they, it's it's like an early test by fire, I think, for May. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and one of the things that we see through Jewel is that um, reasons that we eventually understand, she is a rather conniving person. Yeah, she, at first, though, May did not know that. But May was aware she, Jewel was smarter than other people. But May was not aware how manipulative and deceptive Jewel was. And May had to learn that. <laughs> right, the hard way. <laughs> yes, the hard way. <laughs> so what can you tell us, what, what do you want to share with us about Jewel's personality and her past? You don't have to say any more than you're comfortable with. Uh, you can okay. give us a little bit of a sense of her. <sighs> okay. Well, I, I have to tell you, I don't know what you think about Jewel, but she's absolutely one of my favorite characters in the book. Well, I think it's, I mean, to be honest, I think antagonists are always the most fun to write. So they're usually my favorite characters, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's, uh, she really was my favorite. And uh, she's gone through a lot. She, I, I can say she's different from me. She's uh, very calculative and deceptive and manipulative. She's gone through a lot and she has tasted, uh, the bitter fruit of being abandoned and the shame of living in disgrace and uh, and in loneliness too because she was the only one who survived in her family she was the last one and she understands the true nature of the court and she has learned how to hide herself she also learned the importance of power in the palace and of course, definitely, she understands that if she wants to survive, she she has to have power, and she has she so in that way she wants to be in control, and she would go a long way to get the power by all means necessary. And one of the first things she does is she manipulates May, um, and so that Jewel herself becomes most adored. Yes, I know, by treachery. <laughs> oh, a lot of people actually told me, traitor! <laughs> they would yell at her. Jewel, after they read that section, they were like, oh, traitor, I don't like Jewel at all. <laughs> yeah, uh, she's not an easy person to like, but she is, um, she is acting... Well, I suppose, you know, she's within a, a world where she's not really rewarded for doing anything else. You know, she's she's been she's made an effort and she's been knocked back. And so she she has a very good sense of how to operate within the confines of of uh, where she is. And she is very successful at doing that. She's completely ruthless when it comes to using her friends to get her own way, though. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I actually, when I was writing Jewel, I I thought about the fact that two women, Jewel and May, were similar in some ways. And May actually was uh, Jewel, like many years before, before she was exiled. I don't know how people would think about that, but just this kind of idea in my head. Ah, no, you're right, actually. And in a sense, I was just thinking about this as you were talking. In a sense, Jewel is what Empress Wu is supposed to be, right? Oh, yeah, but she just didn't make it. Right. 
And she doesn't get to be empress, and she probably would have been a terrible empress, but but she is the image that people, that many people now have of Empress Wu. Oh, yeah, that's right. So this brings us to the emperor, uh, who in this case is the Taizong emperor, who, he is both the power center of the world um, that we're talking about, and yet... In many ways, he's he's on the outside. You know, he's he's like um, they call him a MacGuffin. You know, a MacGuffin is is a, a character or an object that everyone wants, and so it mm-hmm. motivates the story. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't have an independent entity. So the Maltese falcon is the MacGuffin, or it can be a person too. You know, the child that everyone's looking for, or whatever. And in a sense, the emperor is a bit like that. He's he's all powerful. Whatever he says goes. He controls the lives of these two thousand women and all of the the eunuchs and everybody, you know, the soldiers and everybody else in the palace. And yet, he's he's what they're all trying to get, you know. Um, but he is a real person. Uh, what? How, how much do you know about him as a historical figure? And and then where did you? Where do you come in as the as the novelist? Hmm. Okay, so uh, many historical records mention that Tang Taizong uh, was an exceptional leader in youth, and he had a group of faithful followers. He he was very helpful in assisting his father when he revolted against the Sui dynasty. And uh, together, Tang Taizong and his father founded the Tang dynasty. And uh, Tang, uh, Emperor Taizong also subdued many troublesome Turkic tribes along Chinese border during many battles, sometimes uh, by sheer lit- military power, sometimes by deceit. And uh, Emperor Taizong was also instrumental in securing the Tang Dynasty and protecting the people in China. He, uh, after he became the emperor, he was also frequently mentioned by many Confucian scholars that he was willing to listen to the counsels of his advisors. That was during the early reign. And many scholars applaud that because they believed that was what a wise and a good ruler was supposed to do. But uh, um, when Ta- Emperor Taizong was older, when he was in his late 30s, he was described differently in history, rec- historical records. It was said that he was suffering poor health, and he lost the interest to take daily counsels from his ministers. And he was insecure and felt the need to demonstrate his military power by trying to conquering the neighboring country, Koguru, which is now North Korea. The emperor was very mercurial. The record also showed that he promoted and uh, demoted a very important minister called Wei Zheng four times. And the emperor gave the minister lavish bestowals for his funeral. But then the emperor had the minister excavated and flattened his tomb. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's some powerful resentment or something. I know. It's just the worst thing you could do to somebody who's dead. <laughs> exactly. So, so this later emperor is actually very much like the one in your book. Yeah, I, I really think I was faithful to that. But the thing is, in, in his early reign, he was very, uh, was very wise. But when he was older, it was not that much. But many historians like to mention the fact that he was very helpful in founding the Tang Dynasty. And he was also very wise to, uh, during his early reign. But not a lot of people mentioned how he was like when he was older. So um, someone else we have to talk about is Pheasant. Oh, yes. So I'm assuming at some level he must be a historical person also because of what happens to him at the end of the book. Um, but tell us about him as he appears in your novel. And, you know, I, I'm interested in what kind of person he is and also what function he serves for you in the novel. Okay. Um, Pheasant is the eighth living son of Emperor Taizong. Also, the third and the youngest son of Emperor Taizong and Empress Wente, who died before May, entered the palace. By birth order, uh, Pheasant has no chance of ascending to the throne. So he was not part of the palace scheme for the throne, and he was often ignored and considered harmless. Uh, by ma- nature, though, Pheasant was a kind, compassionate boy. He was raised among a group of women and spoiled by his empress mother. He didn't feel privileged because of his birth and status, and he considered all girls maids, his friends and sisters. He also has a deep bond with his family, like May. Both of them, they love the family. And uh, Fathom looked up to his older brothers, like uh, any boys should. But most important thing in the moon in the palace is Pheasant was a free spirit. He did not care for the hierarchy in the palace. He did not care for the restrictions between men and women or traditions that dictated that a prince should do this or should not do this. This will become a problem for him because he saw no boundaries and he had no fear of overstepping them. And this is why he would have the relationship with May when he really shouldn't. And this relationship was also the result of his perception of women and his free spirit nature. In the Moon in the Palace, the romance between... May and a pheasant was not a major plot, but it was uh, it was there, and this relationship was vital for May in her quest to the throne. Yes, indeed. I mean, it really wouldn't have been possible without him. Yes, and I I have to say that a pheasant character was inspired by a main character. Jia Bao Yu in the Chinese classic novel called Dreams in a Red Mansion. Ah, <laughs> tell us about him. I, I'm not familiar with that story. Oh, oh, uh, oh, the classic had like 
1,000 pages. I like the novel because I read that when I was little and I really didn't understand it, you know. But、uh, I, I, before, when I was writing The Moon in the Palace, I read the translation of、uh, Dreams in the Red Mansion. It's called The Story of Stones. And Jia Bao Yu's character was. Very sweet, a very sweet boy. He was very loyal. He, was, he grew up、uh, among many women and he was very tender towards all the girls around him. He was very compassionate and he fell in love with a very talented girl called Lin Dai Yu. Of course, the, this relationship was not approved by his family. And、uh, Dreams in the Red Mansion touched this part, and、uh, they described his,、uh, his growth as a boy and his、uh, devotion to the relationship and his pain. It was a very good novel. But it, what I said. The romance between Jia Baoyu and Lin Daiyu was just one small part in the novel. Only a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah, yes, but Pheasant was definitely inspired by him. Yes, he does sound very much like that. He's a very sweet character. I think most people would fall in love with him. And he's just about the same age as Mei, right? Yes, well, in fact, in the history, people. Don't know. There was no record of uh, uh, when Empress Wu was born. We only had the record of when Empress died. So, usually, people believe that、uh, Pheasant, the real Pheasant, was younger than Empress Wu. But in my book, I decided they were the same age. So,、um, before we close out, I'd like to give a sense that there is a larger. Geographical context、um, and historical context to these books.、Uh, it's interesting, I was remembering as I was、uh, preparing for the interview that I, a couple of years ago, I、um, interviewed a translator who's actually a friend of mine about a Russian novel set in the, at the other end of the Silk Road,、uh, actually about 50 years after Empress Wu's death. And、um, But the, the Silk Road, or Silk Roads, or Silk Route, or whatever we want to call、mm-hmm. it, because it's not really a, you know, it's not a highway,、yeah. um, is a big part of the novel. The silk production is an important economic prop of the Tang Dynasty. And you also mentioned Korea, and you know, there are Buddhist monks, and, and、uh, Chipitaka, who is the monk at the beginning, he, is, he, went, he goes to India to learn more about Buddhism, and so on and so forth. So I'm. My impression is that this is a period of, of considerable, certainly political openness or, and to some extent cultural openness to, as all of these influences are, are pouring in. And I'm wondering if you think that has anything to do with May's success, if it made people a little bit more,、um, how should I put this, more tolerant perhaps of a, a woman taking power? Oh, yes, you're absolutely right about that.、Uh, of course, absolutely. I think it definitely, the cultural openness had a lot to do with May's eventual rise to power. The early Tang Dynasty was very receptive to new things and ideas, and that helped、uh, people to accept the idea that they would have a female、um, ruler.
But uh, to get into the details, though, the openness of the the foreign culture in Tang Dynasty also had a lot to do with the fact that the ruling class in the Tang Dynasty had many associations with the nomadic people, the Turkic tribes. So uh, from six from three hundred sixteen A.D. to five hundred eighty one A.D., just years before the Tang Dynasty, many Chinese aristocrats, including the reigning Li's of the Tang Dynasty, they were all either descendants of the nomadic people or intermarried with them. So, with this created a trend with the commoners to accept the foreign culture, and because many Chinese were familiar with the steppe people and the horse riding women, they accept the idea of strong, self-efficient women. The women sometimes、uh, they also sometimes accept the women who were smart. Having skills, playing polo, and even make decisions for the family. This definitely created a tolerant climate for Empress Wu.、Um, but I have to say that this atmosphere would not repeat in the later centuries, such as the Song Dynasty or Qing Dynasty, because during those dynasties, women were forced to break the toes and bind the feet, and they were not allowed to leave the house and everything. You would never see a female empress rising in a dynasty like that. So they were not yet doing foot binding in the Tang Dynasty. No, in Tang Dynasty, actually, women were not binding the feet. They started to bind the feet in Song Dynasty, which is in 11th century.、Ah. Yeah. No, this is you know I write about the step in、uh, women of the step, and this is a big thing. Is that you know everybody? I mean, people who don't know much about the step assume that women are just you know meek little.、Uh, I don't even know what they think. I mean, completely non-entities. But of course, they're nothing of the sort because you absolutely can't be. I mean, you, you, it's not a feminist paradise or anything. But if you're if you're writing, you know, if you're if you're moving house and stuff like that, you can't put your women in a box and kind of leave、That's、them. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this this was exactly what men did、mm-hmm. to women.、Uh, After Tang Dynasty, they put women in a box. They they put women in inside the bedroom, and if they wanted to leave the bedrooms, they had to be carried to the courtyard. <laughs> yeah, well, with I mean, with feet that are three inches long, you can't really do much. <laughs> so, what would you like readers to take away from the Moon in the Palace? Oh,、uh, you know, I would really like to.、Um, People to rethink and reconsider Empress Wu, because when I was researching, I was very mad at a lot of、uh, scholarly, scholarly research and the opinions about Empress Wu. So I would like to show readers that she was not that image that some opinionated Confucian scholars have painted, and actually for. Uh, Americans, I、uh, you know the main reason I I read this in English was because I wanted to introduce Empress Wu to American audience, 
So I wanted them. Um, maybe next time when you guys go to China, when you visit her tomb in Xi'an, you would uh, have my novels in your mind when you read the brochure <laughs> handed it to you, and maybe you will read the biased paragraphs and you just laugh and you know that Empress Wu was not the kind of woman that was described in the handout. Well, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to repeat it. The Empress of Bright Moon is due out uh, in mid-April, and uh, it is the continuation of uh, May's story, although it takes her up mostly to the point where she actually becomes Empress Wu. Um, and I have to say, it's a real page-turner. I read it in two days. I couldn't put it down. So people should definitely go out and find it. But do read The Moon in the Palace first so that you know what the background is. Um, is there anything you want to tell us about the next stage in her journey? Or do you just want people to find out on their own? Oh, I can say a few words, I guess. Um, I can tell you there's still a long way to go for her <laughs> to become the empress. And... Uh, uh, she will f- have to face many challenges as a palace woman. And uh, sometimes she won, and sometimes she lost. And in very she- tragic ways, yeah. Yes, and uh, she will have to pay for that. So what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working, you know, Carolyn, uh, to be honest with you, when I was writing The Moon in the Palace, it was a duration of 10 years, and I was so frustrated. I said, if my book was published, and then, if my book is published, and then I will stop writing, and I will retire. <laughs> Guess what? I can't retire now, because I have to keep writing. I'm writing. <laughs> Writing another novel that's completely unrelated to Empress Wu, but it's set in China in the 1980s. And uh, it's going to be controversial because the topic is... um, um, We all know... uh, uh, this is a part of history in China in 1980s, but uh, not a lot of people were talking about it. And I, as a child, was part of it, so I had to write it. Okay, well, good luck with that. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much, Caroline. It was wonderful to talk about the Moon in the Palace. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Wena Dai Randell about her novels The Moon in the Palace and The Empress of Bright Moon. You can find out more about her at www.wenarandell.com. Like us on Facebook, search for ND Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvik. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Since January 2016, I have added blog posts about books sent to me that for one reason or another don't fit into my interview schedule, so the blog is becoming also an outreach of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.